Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. U.S. economic growth is set to slow to 2.5%, down from 2.9%. This according to Goldman Sachs. They cite fading fiscal stimulus as well as multiple rate hikes. Let's find out more from Brett Ryan. He is Deutsche Bank's senior economist, and he joins me in studio. Brett, thanks very much for being here. Happy New Year to you. Maybe just explain from your perspective why it is that so many analysts, economists, are actually pulling down their estimates for economic growth. Sure, sure no worries. Thank you for having me on the program. Um, basically, uh, you know, I think everybody expects the uh, the economy to slow next year as as the fiscal stimulus starts to come off. Um, would agree would agree with that. Uh, but the main thing is that consumer spending is 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 still the engine of the economy. It's still seventy percent of GDP. Uh, everybody expects housing to, to remain weak because mortgage rates are high and the Fed's hiking rates. Um, but housing is only three point one percent of the economy compared to six percent uh, where it was in the last cycle. And we don't we certainly don't have the leverage on it. Um, non-residential investment, which is capex business spending, uh, that's been that was on a tear in the first half of this year. Forty percent of capex is software and technology, so that should continue at a healthy pace, but not as strong as it was last year. Because why is that? Why do you feel that there's going to be less spending? And you know, you mentioned housing. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interest rates. We'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. But why less? Uh, why less spending on uh, cap- on investment in software right. and things of that right. nature? Well, I think it, there was there was an initial rush uh, in the wake of the tax bill. Um, certainly, it seems that we're in these little mini cycles with capex that are like accelerated depreciation. Perhaps? Yeah, it's exactly bonus depreciation, um, and it seems like we're in like two to three year cycles now for CapEx. So I wouldn't, I, our forecast is fairly conservative. I think we're, we have CapEx growing at around 3% uh, next year. But really it's, 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 the question is, you know, do we slow from 3.1% growth in 2018 to 2% next year, or is it more of a gradual 3% to 2.5, you know, 2. Four, which is what what our number is, and that's kind of going to determine where the where the Fed's going to shake out this year, uh, in next next year. Okay, so with a two point four percent estimate for economic growth in twenty nineteen, how many rate hikes, and what are the path to those rate hikes in twenty nineteen? Well, I mean, in our view, it should be it should be three rate hikes um, if we're going to be growing at two point four percent next year. Uh, and core inflation um, being above the Fed's target. That's the other key there. Um, it's, it's pretty easy to get to 2.1% on core, core PC inflation. I think in, you know, it, it becomes, obviously, it's a little bit more in doubt now. The market's not pricing any Fed hikes uh, for next year, and some parts of the curve are inverted, um, telling you that the market's now expecting rate cuts. 2.52% for the two-year and 2.5% for the three-year. All right, so they're saying not going to be hiking much at all. Um, But, you know, these things can change quickly, uh, and I think the risk markets and yields may have gotten ahead of where the economic data uh, have been. Um, case in point, the Chicago PMI last week was at 65. 
that's still a very healthy level. Manufacturing. Yeah, but I can, I can, you know, I can see your Chicago Fed with a Kansas City Fed report and raise you a Philadelphia or an Empire Manufacturing report. Well, right? so I'll give you, I'll give you uh, Philly, Philly, and um, Philly and New York have slowed, but they're still. Firm, firmly in growth territory. The Richmond was the one that really kind of uh, surprised people last week, but I would say that Richmond was more locally driven. Um, but yeah, it's t- to the extent that do finan- the tightening does the fi- t- tightening of financial conditions right now. How much does that lead, bleed over into the real economy? And that's that's really what people are doing right now in terms of the growth forecast. Now, even the thing that I find it's not necessarily the stock market. It's investment grade credit spreads. And that's what really the Fed's gonna be watching. That's what we're watching. Um, and right now, yeah, if, if, if the credit spreads say wide where they are, let's call it you know, 150, 160 basis points over uh, treasuries, yeah, you could see growth slowing to a low 2% as opposed to a mid 2% range. Are lenders being compensated for this spread? Um, you know, at this point, it, I think when you look at imbalances out there in the economy, it's not like the household last time, it's corporate debt. And so- At a record level. Right, at record levels. But from the Fed's senior loan officer survey, they're still easing lending standards to corporates. So I don't know if lenders are being compensated just yet. Does that concern you? Um, actually, the fact that they're, that they're still there's still be easing credit standards to corporates uh, is a positive for CapEx. And, you know, it's not like there, you know, there's been a ton of demand out there. Um, so in, earlier on in the Demand cycle, for corporate debt, right, you mean? For exactly, in the, earlier on in the cycle. So, um, you know, there's still, profits are still, at least in the, the NEPA profits are up 10% year over year. Companies are doing fairly well. And you know, risk markets seem to have, have sort of priced in now zero to negative profit growth next year. I think it's just gotten a little ahead of itself. The reality is probably somewhere in between. It's not going to be great, but it's not going to be off a cliff either. Speak a little bit about job growth and wage. I guess you could call it right. inflation, but not really. What do you see? Right. I mean, does that make it more difficult to do your job when you see almost full employment in the economy and yet you don't see a surge in acceleration in inflation? Yeah, I mean, this has been, you know, this has been the case throughout this cycle and it's been sort of, you know, confounded economists. Why is the Phillips curve so flat in this cycle versus other cycles? And, you know, there are many uh, arguments for that. I think... The main thing to keep in uh, keep in perspective here is that you know at 3.7 percent unemployment rate, we're generating non-farm payroll growth in the private sector is 1.9 percent year over year, with 3 percent wage inflation and 34 and a half hours worked on average. That's generating 4.9 percent year over year nominal income growth. So you know nominal nominal income growth is what what you make is then what you spend, right? And the combination of hours and wages and job growth, what you're going to see is job growth slow because we're getting near the, the kind of the limits in terms of labor supply and wage growth, you're starting to see now tick up and grind higher. Um, 3% is generally what Fed officials would consider um, consistent with a 2% core PC inflation target. So it's taken a while and it's, but we're finally, years, yes. Right? 
Yes, but we're finally getting to a point where you're seeing the response in wages to a tight labor market. It's not think, roaring, but you know, you're seeing the response. Do you think you could characterize it as a lost decade, just as there was a lost decade in Japan? Um, no, certainly not. Uh, Japan has had seven recessions over the last 30 years. Um, you know, the U.S. has managed to avoid that. Uh, and all the while, the U.S. has been able to raise interest rates while Japan has been stuck at zero. So uh, I would I would certainly wouldn't say it's a bit of lost decade. And, you know, it's quite impressive that we've come from a 10% unemployment rate down to 3.7% now, even though it took, you know, initially a, a long while to get started. What do you think is the biggest challenge for the U.S. economy in 2019? I think it's, it's, it's really it's on the policy front. Um, I think we have... You know, the things that are weighing in the market right now are, uh, one, trade, uh, China-U.S. trade issues. Uh, if you do, if talks do not, you know, produce something on March 1st and those uh, tariffs go to 25% on $250 billion in goods, that's a $70 billion tax on the, on uh, U.S. and that's going to get passed on to businesses and consumers. Um, so that certainly hurts with in terms of investment. Uh, the uncertainty causes um, causes you to ca- you know pause on capex plans, uh, that sort of thing. Um, second, uh, I would say would be you know obviously international, Italy, Brexit, um, those issues that are, have kind of been been a constant you know in the background, uh, destabilizing issues. Um, and then you know the last thing I would say is uh, you know really a corporate loss of confidence would be would be the the main thing where corporations just say, you know, with all the policy uncertainty, that's it. I'm, I'm, you know, hunkering down and, and not investing in my business or I begin to lay off workers. But it doesn't seem more, we're far from that point. I mean, the labor market, there is not, no, there is very little signs that that's slowing. All right. Thanks very much. Really well done. Appreciate it. All three of those things are going to be front and center. Appreciate it. Uh, Brett Ryan is Deutsche Bank's senior U.S. economist, joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Mergers and acquisitions, the hallmark perhaps for 2018 is going to be the mega deal. Those are the deals that have valuations of $5 billion or more. Here to tell us what to expect in 2019, having learned everything about the mergers and acquisitions industry, because he basically helped to create it, is Robert Profusek. He is the global chair of mergers and acquisitions at Jones Day. Thanks very much for being here, Rob Profusek. Much appreciated. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to, to you, it was, too. It was a pretty happy New Year for the world of mergers and acquisitions, wasn't it, in Yeah, but it was sort of a tale of two halves. The first half was record-setting. It was f- fabulous. And the third quarter, it started to get bumpy a little bit, I think mostly because of the trade issues um, and uncertainty about valuation. And, of course, the last month or so has been very bumpy with all the volatility. But it's it was still a third third highest year ever, almost four trillion dollars of transactions that's a mind-boggling number <laughs> you I just can't, can't even, even re- no i don't know right, what i mean four trillion couldn't line up four trillion things and actually i have no idea what it really means <laughs> you know, it's a well, lot yeah, I mean. a lot i like that that's the technical term you mentioned the word valuation and i want to call upon your expertise and your experience in the world of valuation because when we quote daily stock prices or the price of any asset on a daily basis it is not for the whole entity Whereas when a company or a buyout firm 
puts forth an offer to purchase an entire company. It's like buying a car versus buying the steering wheel. There's a whole different valuation process that is involved. And I'm just wondering if you could share a little detail about that. Yes. Well, valuation in the M&A setting is, is, is different. It's very different. If you talk to your average analyst about on Wall Street, it's a multiple of earnings. It's earnings growth. That sets the multiple. They look at that. That's not so important in M and A. It's a it's a more fundamental valuation. It looks at the cash flow of the business, and if we pay this and we spend that much capital, what return are we getting on our capital investment? In a sense, it's it's similar, but it really is a function of the return on the investment you're making. M and A really is just the alternative to building something yourself. So you could build that car if you bought a steering wheel and you bought the tires and you bought all this stuff, but it would be pretty hard to do. You know, you'd have to spend a lot of time and you really wouldn't know what you were doing and you weren't sure what you'd get when you came out with it, out of it. If you go to the dealership and buy that car, you know what you're getting. So you're willing to pay a premium for that. That's what companies do. So the, the valuation in a sense is more fundamental. The markets are more fickle. Uh, they're They're just based on I'm willing to invest this much on the assumption somebody will buy it for more. That's it. It isn't a question of real and hope that I got a return on my capital. But as we've seen in the last quarter, you know, it is what it is. Right. It is. It is. Okay. Well, if it is what it is in the last quarter, what do you think the change in stock market valuations has done, if anything, to those efforts to buy and sell companies. Well, things, things look, the, the fundamentals of M&A are, are driven by this investment decision. Am I better off investing in a new plant or buying one, you know, to make it simple? Um, and usually it's better to to buy than to build. You got, it happens quicker, you got you, you more certainty, you know what you're getting. At least you think you know what you're getting, let me put it that way. Um, the buy versus build decision is very simple. Um, so, but when things, and M&A is driven in, these, in this world, that's why it's become so fundamental, by technology and globalization. It isn't really the credit markets, this, that, and the other thing. Stuff that guys like me talk about, yeah, on the fringes that matters, but it's a more fundamental process than that. Um, right now, you know, with, with valuations being uncertain, if you're a seller and you were 10% higher a month ago, you're going to say, ah, I better wait. So it will have a short-term effect, not a long-term effect. Now, some of the other things that are going on, the headline issues, probably will be stimulative. If there is a deal with China, or if there's, we say there's a deal with China, <laughs> I mean, there's a difference between saying it and having one, I think, um, you're going to have a real spurt of activity. Um, China was a big player in North America in 2017. That door was... It's safe to say, really slammed shut in 2019. It went from $300 billion of, of transactions in North America to just uh, just a tiny fraction of that last year. If that door is reopened, there'll be a blizzard of activity here because Chinese companies, despite putting all the politics aside, want the market, they want the technology, they want the know-how, they want all those things. And right now, they're foreclosed from doing it. You know, the Broadcom situation last year was really important symbolically. It meant we need to reset this balance. What, 
One thing that I find interesting is the sort of inner dynamics of this year's mergers and acquisitions. Small deals won out. Goldman Sachs won, for example, with being the uh, the top advisor by dealing with small deals, not big deals. Do you think that will continue next year as it becomes more politically fraught to get some of these big deals done? Well, it's hard to tell. This administration is much more accommodating in terms of antitrust issues, um, much more accommodating. Now, that isn't to say that unless not- it's from China. Yeah, right. Or anything from China. Um, but in terms of uh, the the uh, China influence, it's, the door is, is is shut. And you can say that's political if you want. Doesn't matter. It's shut. So it, who cares who shut it? You know. Um, and I think if I, I you know you you there's going to be some sort of resol- resolution of that, whether that door is wide open or just partially open. I don't know. Um, but there were fewer bigger deals. Um, uh, there were a lot of big deals in the first half of the year. Um, and that was mostly, I think, because the, uh, the sense of, uh, of, of people like me was you can, get, you can get big deals through this administration, whereas the Obama administration, especially in the end of it, was very difficult. So we'll see. I, you know, I think there's, there's so much capital and there's so, there's so much to do with it. I, I don't think it's, it's right to look at a particular segment of a, a particular period and come to some conclusion. Um, you know, the, the That's overall, what we do. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> so but, come on, play. But the overall number of deals is still down year over year this year, which is kind of an interesting statistic, even though third biggest year ever in terms of dollar volume. Talk, if you can, about activist investors and their role in mergers and acquisitions. Well, it's a we're in this we're in a quiet period of activism, so to speak. There is a without getting real technical about it, we're we're just about to enter a period that if an activist wants to nominate somebody to a board of directors, they get the right to do that. It's generally January and into part of February. You're going to see a lot of that, and you know the story's easier with this decline in the marketplace. You know, show me the money and do something with it. Now, you know, the, the traditional refrain of the activist has been lever up your balance sheet, pay out the cash. Well, companies have been doing that. I mean, last we're going to have a trillion dollars in buybacks this year. A trillion. Again, once again, that number that we can't even fathom. We don't know what it means. So that's not so much, but there's still a lot to do. A lot of the story about activism probably will be sell the company, break it up, meaning more M&A. What are the top industries that are going to get beset by mergers and acquisitions in 2019? It's it's easier to say which businesses won't be that active. I don't think we're going to see, despite the precipitous decline in oil prices, I don't think we're going to have a rush of M&A in the oil patch, in the fracking patch, so to speak. Because it already happened. Yeah, it happened. It already happened to media, too. And they're not as levered as they were, you know, when this happened last time. So I don't think you're going to have a lot of it. And people are going to look at the prices and say, not a good time to sell. Um, Everybody else is in about the same boat. You know, the oil oil stocks are are different. I think you're going to see a huge amount in technology. That's That's just the name of the game in technology. When you look at the big tech companies, they are bellwethers for what goes on in the industry in general. You've got to keep buying things. You've got to get more, you've got to get additional name brands and all that stuff as part of your portfolio. Industrial companies are still are still globalizing, so you're going to see that. Europe is a little bit less certain. I think until we have some greater clarity on what Brexit means, hard to tell. It really is hard to tell. 
Thank you very much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for your thoughts and your insight. And Happy New Year to Robert Profusek. He is the Global Chair of Mergers and Acquisitions for Jones Day, giving us uh, not only his outlook for 2019, but a little bit of uh, description on what happened in 2018. We are broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. And here's an acronym for you, CP. TPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. It entered into force yesterday. Seven of the 11 members have ratified this pact. This reduces tariffs among countries such as Mexico, Japan, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, and Vietnam. Here to help us understand the implications, Meredith Sumter, Eurasia Group Head of Research, Strategy, and Operations. Meredith, thank you very much for being with us Happy New Year to you. And will it be a happy new year for those member states that have actually ratified this agreement? What will happen as a result? Thanks for having me, Pim. Uh, You should expect that it will be a happy new year and happy 2019 for those member countries. We should expect a massive rush of immediate liberalization among those countries, as you said, initial cuts, the majority of the initial cuts went into effect um, yesterday, but the substantial amount, over 90% of tariffs will either be cut or eliminated by tomorrow. We are at the start of a process by which the remaining tariff lines for these countries will be drawn down annually over a period of several years. And when it's all said and done, perhaps over the, the next five or six years, we could see Uh, Most CPTPP member countries will see nearly 99% of tariffs amongst them eliminated. So will this be enough to, I guess, create a new superpower or new kind of alliance when it comes to trade that does not include the U.S.? It certainly will be an economic force. Uh, And the key question is, when will Washington wake up to realizing that it is outside of what is likely to be uh, the most high-value, um, generating, cutting-edge trade pact uh, that uh, the, the 21st century so far will see. This is it, the third largest trade pact behind NAFTA and uh, the European um, single market. But at the same time, it comprises uh, important, crucial rules that are meant to address many of the Uh, industrial and market access concerns of the Trump administration. Uh, There are important chapters on leveling the the playing field with state-owned enterprises. Uh, There are also critical new rules uh, concerning trade and investment related to the digital economy. Now, this is important because the digital economy, of course, is where economic activity is, is headed. But it's also notable that these sorts of rules don't necessarily exist elsewhere, either in international uh, institutions like the WTO or in other notable trade pacts. If the U.S. wanted in, if they, using your words, wake up to, to what they are missing out on, would this pact have them? So there are certain several members that really do want the U.S. to come back um, because adding the U.S. economy to this trade pact will significantly expand its dynamic force. But at the same time, the U.S. will have to negotiate to get back into the pact. Several of these countries uh, have, because the U.S. decided to leave the pact, many of these sort of stringent provisions that Washington had advocated for 
have effectively been suspended. So you see some reports that some of these member countries, because the U.S. has pulled out of the pact, are not subject to uh, as high levels of competition uh, uh, with U.S. companies as they would have been otherwise. So Japan aside and several other key members aside, you may see some of the existing CPTPP members drag their feet a bit should Washington decide that it wants to re-enter. What role do you believe countries such as Colombia, Thailand, South Korea, even Indonesia, and maybe even the United Kingdom will play in the future of this pact? Well, certainly now that we've had the the CPTPP ratified, member countries are, are now looking at ways to expand the pact. So Colombia has already applied to join Thailand is keenly interested. South Korea has indicated interest. Uh, the UK and Indonesia have expressed interest. But watch here, because you know, while Thailand has the most to lose from being outside the CPTPP, given its heavy role in regional supply chains and the increased competition that will come to its economy from other um, Southeast Asia CPTPP countries, we expect that Thailand will move first to try to enter. The UK joining will likely not happen for the foreseeable future, um, as the United Kingdom will not be able to join until after the post-Brexit transition phase is over. The one country, though, that, that people should watch over the long term is China. China is watching this trade pact closely, but for, the, for now, in the short term, will remain focused on the less ambitious trade pact, it is negotiating with ASEAN countries and trading partners. This is the Regional Comprehensive and Economic Partnership. Now, that aside, Beijing's interest will be piqued by a successful CPTPP, however, as ultimately China's priority is to be at the center of the Asia-Pacific's economic architecture. They will not want to be outside of this trade pact and will look for some way to align with it, if not to join. Meredith, I want to sort of use some of the incredible knowledge that you have, having been a diplomat uh, in Beijing, a fascinating role, especially right now. I'm trying to get a sense of how much we should really give credence to the softening of trade tensions between the U.S. and China based on a a Twitter post by President Trump and some uh, utterances from officials in Beijing. Is this real? I would say for now, pay less attention to the tweets and more attention to any sort of announcements and the detail of announcements that actually come from the negotiators themselves. So with that, I would watch closely in the U.S. as to uh, what USTR Bob Lighthizer uh, might put out in terms of the progress of of those negotiations coming through. Certainly from my perspective, uh, watching uh, China, I have seen Little to to no indication yet that President Xi Jinping uh, is ready to make uh, some of the significant structural reforms to his state-backed economy that Washington is demanding. Uh, President Xi Jinping uh, gave a notable uh, policy speech on the 18th of December uh, lauding the 40 years of reform and opening, and he used that speech not to signal that there would be structural reforms to the economy, but rather to champion the party's role in the economy and the success of, of China's economy under his watch. Meredith, next year will mark 70 years since Mao Zedong led the Communist Party to power. Is there any likelihood that 2019 will cause 
leaders in China to reassess their economic program, or will it just bolster their efforts to push forward their China First program? Certainly, Xi Jinping is perhaps the most powerful leader that China has seen since Mao. And all indications thus far indicate that while there likely is uh, some grumbling and discontent uh, among you know, party and policy circles with the, the direction that um, Xi Jinping is taking the economy, so think you know, less structural reform, certainly uh, more uh, party control over the functioning of the state economy, uh, more control over civil society, there are no alternatives uh, to Xi. Uh, and it is unlikely, even if there is this discontent, we have seen little sign that there is going to be anything but more power consolidation uh, and more political stability uh, for China under Xi Jinping, which in a certain sense is, is positive for markets. But if you think about it from an economic reform perspective and with China's continued slowing and growth over the long term, that doesn't look so good. Thank you so much for being with us. Meredith Sumter, uh, your head of research strategy and operations for Eurasia Group. Want to bring in an expert when it comes to looking at investments. Jack Ablin is the chief investment officer and founding partner of Crescent Wealth Advisors. Jack Ablin, Happy New Year to you and thank you for being with us. Let's begin with your thoughts on U.S. equities. Are they expensive? U.S. equities, unfortunately, Pim, are still a little bit expensive when you look at them through the lens of history. Um, the, um, the one thing that perhaps some bulls are latching onto is forward PEs, uh, that forward PEs look reasonable based on the next 12-month earnings projections, uh, but I would argue that only six months of those projections are real. Uh, the Q3 and Q4 probably haven't been revised downward to a point where they make a lot of sense. All right. So if you believe that stocks in the United States are still perhaps expensive, when will they cease being expensive? How much further do they need to decline in value? It, it's, you know, it's hard to tell uh, just because markets oftentimes overshoot. Uh, also, um, you know, it's, it's a timing thing. It's possible, for example, that, um, you know, if the forward earnings are in fact, uh, true and, uh, earnings could, you know, miraculously be revised upward, which of course they've been re being revised downward. Um, we could, we could also, um, you know, get a cheap market without too much pain. But uh, my sense is, um, you know, the foreign markets are actually fairly priced. And in fact, I would, in fact, go so far as to say emerging markets are downright cheap. Downright cheap. Emerging markets when it comes to their export quality, or are you talking about companies that are focused on domestic consumption? In emerging markets, yeah, it's um, well. I'm looking at the index in general, but I would say um, domestic consu consumption is certainly a part of it. Uh, a big, in fact, an increasing part of it, uh, which is encouraging news. Uh, but you're right; um, a lot of emerging market uh, companies do rely on global growth and global demand, and of course, uh, that's something that's been called into question over the, the most 
recent couple of quarters. So now that leads you, I would imagine, to thoughts about the value of the U.S. dollar. It does. And I think here the U.S. dollar, which have certainly been driving the, the S&P versus emerging market trade over the last few years, um, has probably gone as high as it's going to go, largely because um, the central banks uh, are now, particularly abroad, are now starting to close down a lot of their uh, aggressive policies and, you know, who knows, maybe even start to tighten, which could um, help boost the value of foreign currencies relative to the U.S. dollar over the uh, coming 12 to 18 months. So would that suggest that if you are an investor that has dollars to spend, now is the time to do so when it comes to purchasing assets outside the U.S.? Well, you know, that's a, I think it's a tricky question because we look at a multiple of factors, and valuation is certainly one of them. Uh, I, w- I certainly wouldn't jump headlong into a market that I didn't think was, ch- you know, was cheap. Uh, but on the other hand, there are fundamental factors like, you know, the economic backdrop, uh, liquidity, uh, and, of course, momentum, um, none of which has really been too cooperative. I will say, on a momentum front, we do look at the relative return of, let's say, international or emerging versus the U.S., and, you know, probably not a surprise because the uh, the foreign markets did get hurt earlier in the year that they've actually been outperforming on a relative basis uh, to the U.S. So I would say from that perspective, if you've got money already in the market and it's in U.S., yes, shift it, keep your, keep your uh, position in place and shift it to the international markets. If you've got dry powder and you're waiting to add risk, I think there's probably still a little more time left on this on this uh, move. You mentioned liquidity. What is your impression of liquidity conditions? Liquidity, unfortunately, appears to be tightening. I mean, not just because of the Fed, but also lenders' willingness to extend uh, cash to borrow, spend, and invest. Um, here we've seen uh, credit conditions tighten. If you look, for example, at credit spreads, which is one of the main metrics that I like to track. Uh, and that really broke down from uh, our perspective in the first or second week of October, uh, suggesting that, uh, you know, it is getting a little bit more difficult uh, to uh, borrow money uh, in these markets, not just on a you know, nominal basis, obviously, with interest rates uh, potentially moving higher, uh, but also on a spread basis as lenders require a higher premium to extend credit to lower quality borrowers. Jack Ablin is the chief investment officer and founding partner of Crescent Wealth Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.